Hello, and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb, and welcome to our ninth episode on the Iroquois influence in the American Revolution. And Andrew, on top of that, this is also our 50th episode. So thank you very much for everybody that stuck with us this long. If you're still here, if you're not, I guess we wouldn't know. And neither would you because you're not listening. <laughs> but for those of you that are listening, thank you very much. Uh, there will be much more to come, but let's get on with it, Andrew. We are going to finish up the American Revolution today. So this will probably be a pretty hefty episode. So let's go back and kind of sum up what happened last week with the Sullivan campaign. General Sullivan came up into western and central New York, pretty much burned everything in sight, and it forced the Cayuga and Seneca to seek refuge at Fort Niagara, where they had a horrible winter, and hundreds and perhaps even thousands of people starved to death because of the cold and lack and want of food. And this just didn't affect the enemies of the Americans. The Oneida and parts of the Tuscarora and Onondaga have either been allies or neutral with the Americans, but this has had a bad effect on them too because they're actually really, really struggling themselves as far as food and everything like that. And this is forcing them to kind of rub shoulders and ask for help from their brothers, the Seneca and the Cayuga at Fort Niagara. And people are saying, what, why are you here asking for food? Uh, you've been f helping the Americans and they caused all this. So there's a lot of strife for both the enemies and the allies of the Patriots. During this horrible winter of 1780, Brant was stationed at Fort Niagara, and he was cross. As we had discussed, some of the Tuscarora and Oneida showed up at Fort Niagara looking for food and help, and Brant was pretty blunt with them. He told them that their families would get nothing unless they repented of their sins against their brothers of the Confederacy and immediately take up arms against the rebel scum. You've walked all this way to Niagara. It's winter. You're starving. You're friends of the Americans, but your stomachs are empty. Your children are at the point of maybe death. What would you do in this situation? So 59 agree to take up arms and go with him on his next campaign in the spring. Now, throughout the whole winter, nobody bothers trying to attack Andrew. In upstate New York and Canada, it's just too difficult to be moving in the snow and not freezing to death. So basically everybody just hunkers down for the winter and things don't really start picking back up until March. That's when uh, the campaigns start up again. So in the spring of 1780, Brant and uh, other war chiefs are constantly coming out of Fort Niagara and raiding western New York all the way over to the Mohawk Valley, grabbing prisoners, burning, and then returning. You know, from groups anywhere from a group of five people to a bigger one, up to 100 people. And they would just be doing this constantly. And because they were basically light troops, it was very difficult to catch anybody. They would just come in one day, you'd hear through the grapevine, oh, so-and-so's farm got burned last night by uh, Brant's men. And then you wouldn't hear anything again for another couple of weeks. And then you'd hear another neighbor's house got burned. And pretty much any time somebody's house got burned, they blamed Brant, even if Brant was nowhere around. It was just he had become this boogeyman to the American colonials. So April 17th, 1780, there's a guy named Captain Alexander Harper. And he was given a very important mission, Andrew. And you want to hear what it is? Well, is he an American or a British agent? He's an American. Okay. I'm guessing he's supposed to stop somebody from doing something? Well, actually, it's more important than that. You see, he was given orders to take a small group of men, travel 30 miles to a modern-day Harper's Field, and get this, Andrew, tap the maple trees and get some syrup for the men because everybody's sugar levels are really low. He went on a pancake run? <laughs> he, he was ordered to go 30 miles, take some men, and literally get maple syrup <laughs> to help subsidize the calorie intake for the forts. Okay. So while he has his men and they're gathering syrup, guess who? What? Guess which boogeyman actually comes out of the trees and capture and kill all his men? Well, since you're implying it, Joseph Brant. Yes, Joseph Brant leads an ambush and he kills three of his men and he takes the other 11 prisoner, including Captain Harper. Now, one of the prisoners had a, a diary he wrote, and in it he mentions one of the loyalists tried to kill them right there, and they were arguing whether to kill them or capture them. And a, a fight and an argument broke out between Captain Harper and Joseph Brant. And Brant picks up his tomahawk and walks over to bash Captain Harper's skull in. 
But then he starts to think about it, and you know, it's hard to question a dead man, as the old saying goes. So he decides it would be best to question him. And Brant wanted to know the usual questions. Uh, for example, how many people are stationed in the fort at Schoharie? When Brant asks him this, Harper replies that, oh, just the other day, 300 colonial soldiers just arrived and reinforced the fort. So there's probably no point in you attacking that with this small war party. Were there 300 soldiers there? No, uh, Harper made the entire thing up. Thank goodness he did because Brant ends up taking the 11 prisoners back to Fort Niagara and he most likely could have taken the entire fort and everybody in it if he hadn't been tricked by Captain Harper. We've been talking a lot about what's going on up here in western New York and Pennsylvania and the Ohio Valley, but I haven't heard any of this in the American Revolution. We haven't really been talking. What's going on south of Iroquois? What's happening with the Americans? they got to be close to winning this now, right? Well, right, Andrew. The war kind of resolves itself in 1781, and we're in the spring of 1780, so things are probably going pretty well for the Patriots at this point, but that's not true. Down in Charleston, South Carolina, after 45 days of being besieged, the colonial general, Benjamin Lincoln, ends up surrendering. We're not talking about a small surrender. He gives up his entire 5,400-man garrison and the city of Charleston to a superior force of 10,000 British and Loyalist troops. This is a massive defeat. I cannot emphasize this enough. It's the rebels' worst defeat of the war. Washington's been defeated, but he never lost an entire army. This is comparable to, I mean, how many did Burgoyne lose? About 3,500? So this is a large army that's just lost. The largest amount of men that Brant and um, Butler or John Johnson will have throughout this entire northern campaign is around 1,000 men. So just like this, 5,400 men surrender. So <laughs> that is a huge chunk of the colonial patriot army at the time. So when Brant hears this, he's probably really buoyed and thinking that the war might finally be swinging back in their favor. Now, enough of these uh, raids from Brant and what he's up to. Let's, let's hear about the big chunk of the army. Now, Andrew, in April 1780, a Tory scout... Can I use that word, Tory? Does everybody know what that means, or is that just an American thing? A Tory is a British loyalist. Yes. Uh, I wasn't sure. Or if... a member of parliament of a certain political party. But now they know. So go ahead. <laughs> so uh, a loyalist scout sneaked back from the Mohawk Valley to Quebec. Sneaked, correct? I believe it is. That's what I thought. It doesn't sound right, but it is. <laughs> so he sneaked back from the Mohawk Valley all the way up to Quebec. And he proceeded to snitch on the rebel Americans. He told the governor of Quebec that... The rebel Americans were forcing all the men to join the Minutemen militia. And anyone who refused to join would be considered a Tory and would be instantly sent to prison. All their property would be confiscated for the colonial army. And the governor of Quebec was mighty pissed off. It was not chivalrous, I think would be the word he would use. This is America, right? People are supposed to have the rights to, to agree or disagree. So what did the general in Quebec do? Well, he called up Sir John Johnson, and he told him to prepare a small party of whites and Indians to rescue and lead the Loyalists from the Mohawk Valley up to Quebec. Sir John agreed, but he planned to use this opportunity to strike a blow. He wasn't just interested in getting the Loyalists. He figured, hey, might as well do some burning and raiding while we're down there. So on the 12th of May, Johnson led his force of 500 whites and Indians into the Mohawk Valley. But the rebels had spies of their own. As they usually do. Yep. And they heard about his plan, but they didn't know exactly where he'd be coming from or what day or week he would be doing it. So everybody's just kind of keeping a sharp eye out, I guess you'd say. So he headed out down Lake Champlain and then marched from Crown Point, and they came to a Scottish settlement on May 21st. He round up and killed as many patriot, I guess they would call them, uh, what's the word, rebels? You can always tell when you're reading this stuff, Andrew, in books, uh, who's writing it by the words they use, rebels or patriots. So I'll call him patriot. He, he rounds up the, the patriot leaders and he kills them and he burns their farms and homes and proceeded to march down the Mohawk River. As he's going, he gathered over 143 loyalists and their African slaves 
and then he returned up to Quebec. The American rebels inst instantly called up the Minutemen as soon as they heard that John Johnson was here raiding, and instantly had a very large militia, and they went to chase down Sir John Johnson's force. But then all of a sudden, word started spreading through the towns that the boogeyman, Chief Joseph Brandt, was going to strike the south side of the river. So this kind of forced all of the militia to say, eh, should we really be chasing after him if Brant is going to come and attack our towns here? So Sir John Johnson was able to make a clean getaway all the way back up to Quebec because everybody was too afraid to leave the towns unprotected. In reality, Brant wasn't exactly there yet. He was still back at Niagara, and he was planning a raid into the Mohawk Valley, but he was still organizing things. So in July, he continues to recruit people. Among them are some of the Tuscarora and Onondaga and even some Oneida who are reluctantly coming along because they were promised food and protection. So he's got about 300 Haudenosaunee and other Native Americans coming with him. So on July 11th, he left Fort Niagara, and his mission this time was to head for Oneida Territory. He gets there, and he finds the abandoned town of Kanajahari. And anything that was there, he burned. The Oneida homes were burned, their church that Samuel Kirkland had built for them, the fort that the Americans had made for the Oneida's protection. But the Oneida people realized that, you know, we have to leave this fort. And so they were all hiding out at Fort Stanwix with their families and cattle because it's a much more impressive fort. Brant approaches Stanwix with his whole entourage, and he starts to make it look like he's going to attack it. In reality, the British couldn't take Stanwix a couple of years ago. Brant and 300 people without any artillery is not going to take Fort Stanwix. And once the Americans and Oneida fire some cannons at him, he pretty much decides, yeah, it's not worth my time. So anything he can find outside the fort, horses or cattle, he kills and then departs and he starts heading down the south side of the Mohawk Valley. And he pretty much raids uncontested for weeks. Any home or barn or church he finds, he burns. But not all the churches. That's right, Andrew. Uh, Brant, throughout all of this, he still considered himself a devout Christian. He just uh, was an Anglican Christian, so any English church that he came across, he would leave standing. Any other Protestant or Catholic denomination that he came across, he would burn. And that's kind of the crazy dichotomy of Joseph Brandt. One of our listeners wrote this week, not understanding, they were very surprised because, you know, we look at Brandt as the villain in the story. And, you know, Caleb and I, we try to stay away from good versus bad. But to people in Canada, Brandt is a national hero. And he was a devout Anglican Christian, as was his sister Molly. And he even translated texts and hymns into the Mohawk language. But to Americans, he's Monster Brandt. And so as he continues raiding across New York State, he finally returns to Fort Niagara, loaded up with prisoners and loot. And he's there until September. So on this mission, Brant gets to co-lead with his sister's stepson, John Johnson. So what would that make him? I don't know. His nephew, cousin, brother-in-law, step, step, step son. nephew. <laughs> I don't know if there's a word in English language that <laughs> defines it. But they set out together. Step-nephew-in-law, I think. <laughs> I thought they were friends. Off and on again, there was a lot of tension. Tension and instances of drinking kind of had flare-ups. But I guess enough, they were mended enough to go on this campaign together. So Brant gets 200 Iroquois to go along with John Johnson and other regulars board boats, and they sail from Niagara to Oswego. As we've seen many times before, they travel up the Oswego River, and they've got about 650 men in total. But this time... Instead of traveling on Lake Oneida, which brings them close to Fort Stanwitz, they take the southern branch of the waterway, and that takes them to Onondaga Lake, which is where modern-day Syracuse is. And their mission this time is what they've been doing for the last five, six years now, raid farms and villages, especially in the Mohawk and Schoharie Valleys, and try and destroy any crops that they can that are just coming in now to the harvest, because these crops have been being used as a surplus to send to Washington's army in the south. So if they're able to do all this, they're hoping that they could even get to Schenectady. Meanwhile, while all this is happening, another expedition is occurring in the east, 
In October of 1780, 300 Mohawk from Canada and seven British soldiers raided into the White River Valley in Vermont. I thought there weren't any battles in the American Revolution in Vermont, Andrew. Well, we mentioned the one during uh, the Burgoyne campaign, but you're right, Caleb. There were no battles because this is not a battle. They go down and they burn a whole bunch of sites, take 26 prisoners and all the loot they can carry and head back, kill four Americans. By the time the colonial militia get their pants on, the Mohawks are already on their way back to Canada. So no battle takes place. But let's get back to Branton Johnson. After camping at Onondaga Lake for the night, you recall that Brant forced a lot of Oneida to come with him, Caleb? Mm -hmm. It sounds good on paper to get more people to come fight with you. But when those people have shown time and time again that they're actually on the colonial American side, it seems like a real problem to have these people with you when you're going through a densely wooded area. So in the middle of the night, an Oneida man gets up and he creeps through the camp and he steals a mortar shell and wraps it in a blanket and disappears into the woods. Why would he want a mortar shell? Well, he's heading for Fort Stanwix, and he takes that to show the people there that he has proof that there really is a British army and Brant is coming. And he's, the proof is this mortar shell, because you... Why would an Oneida person have a mortar shell from a cannon? I don't know about you, Andrew, but I wouldn't want to travel through the woods for miles and miles with a mortar shell either. And so he used that as proof to say, look, I'm legit. I'm not making this up. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm on your side. Here is proof. Brant is coming. Get ready. So while he's at Fort Stanwix, he sees the other Oneida people are there, and they start sending out different messengers to get the whole Oneida nation riled up and ready for battle to join the Americans again. And one of the people here is Lewis Cook. By this point, Cook has been promoted to a lieutenant colonel in the Continental Army, which makes him the highest ranking man of African descent to serve in the American Army until the late 19th century. We mentioned many times in our previous episodes that his father was an African and his mother was a uh, Algonquin woman, but he had become a Mohawk leader who was now fighting with the Oneida for the Americans. Are you following all of that? Anyway, Lewis Cook has huge amounts of experience and knowledge at this time because he's been trained in Indian and European war tactics. The guy has spent the whole winter at Valley Forge with Washington and Lafayette and Steuben. And in a short amount of time, Lewis has been able to gather 1,500 Oneida and Patriot soldiers. And they're on their way down to try and stop the Johnsons and Brant once and for all. So while the Americans are rounding up all of their different Oneida allies, Johnson and Brant are on a very quick pace heading east towards the Schoharie Valley, which is just off the Mohawk Valley. Yeah, after sailing across Lake Ontario, they took Bateau down to Lake Oswego. Then they're marching south from there, and they're marching on the edges of the Schoharie Creek, which is one of the main tributaries to the Mohawk River. And at this point, they have over 900 men with them between Redcoats, Tories, and Indians. So they're actually growing in strength as they go. They're gathering more loyalists. As they work their way down the Schoharie Creek, Johnson passes by what was called the Upper Fort of Schoharie. Uh, there were three different forts. They called them the Upper, the Middle, and the Lower. Go figure. And he decides to march right past the first fort. There's no point in even messing with it. They're all uh, held up in their fort, so he just goes around them and starts burning the barns and houses and crops. And when they reach the middle fort, this fort was also known as Fort Defiance. Wasn't there another fort called Fort Defiance, or is this the same well, there one? there was Mount Defiance, oh, which okay. was by Ticonderoga. Yeah, that, I knew I'd read it somewhere before. Anyway, not the same thing. Johnson orders the fort to surrender, or they'll all die. Did they? Uh, the fort politely declined, and uh, Johnson, knowing that his bluff was called... He and Brant and the rest of their men continued their destructive march and head north and just continue to burn everything in their path. When they pass the lower fort, Johnson orders to have his cannons and his mortars open fire on the fort. But they didn't really have anything that big, probably a couple three and four pounders. Nobody was injured. Nobody was hurt. And so his forces decided to make camp a little further away. And they tried to come up with a plan on what to do next. So on October 18th, Johnson orders Joseph Brandt to take a small party and burn the settlement around Fort Hunter, while the main force continue marching up the Schoharie Creek, where it joins with the Mohawk River. When they arrive at the Mohawk River, Andrew, they split 
They send some men across the river and some stay on the east side, some on the west, and they just start working their way west along the Mohawk River, burning and pillaging as they go. Now, Andrew, at this point in the campaign, they're into mid-October, so Sir John Johnson and Joseph Brandt are running out of time as far as the amount of damage and pillaging they can do because they realistically only have a couple more weeks of campaign weather before they need to head back to Fort Niagara for the next winter. So they're working their way north along the Mohawk River, just trying to do as much damage as they can. By this time, Johnson's kind of getting worried and looking over his shoulder. He thinks that they're probably being pursued by a rather large American force. So at this point, he orders that his heavy cannon guns be buried in a swamp so that they won't be found, and this way they can travel faster and avoid colonial militia. They're marching until midnight, and then they make camp. They're absolutely exhausted. But in the early morning hours, outside a place called Stone Arabia, there's a small garrison led by a guy named Colonel John Brown. And he thinks that this is a great opportunity to attack. John Brown was in charge of a fort called Fort Paris. And he heard that John Johnson only had 200 men with him. He was severely misinformed. So Colonel Brown, he had over 400 men under his command. And he hears that there's an American relief army coming from the north to help reinforce him, and they could be here at any time. So he figures two to one odds, maybe this will make me look good. I'll take my 400 men out there and defeat them before these thousand-man reinforcement army shows up. But what Brown didn't realize is that John Johnson had split more than 100 of his men, mostly Brant's men, to the other side of the river. So when the battle started, Brown's 400 men were against only 170 of Sir John Johnson's, but Johnson's forces were able to turn and Brant's men came across from the river and they were able to completely flank Brown. He loses 40 men almost in instantly and loses his own life during the heat of the battle. So all the rest of his men flee back to Fort Paris. When Brown's scared and winded men arrive back at Fort Paris, they find a very pleasant surprise. General Van Rensselaer had just showed up with a militia army of nearly a thousand men. Meanwhile, back over in the British camp, John Johnson is very impressed with what Brant has done. During all the fighting, Brant just seemed to be in the mist and thick of things and just cut people down. John Johnson writes in his journal that Brant, quote, contributed greatly to our success. But during the fighting, however, he was wounded in the bottom of one of his feet. So by the time everything ends and Colonel Brown's other forces have retreated back, they find Brown's body and they start picking through his clothes. And in it are papers from General Van Rensselaer stating that, hey, we're on our way to come help. We just left Fort Butler. We'll be here soon. So Johnson and Brant know that more Patriots are going to be here, so we got to do something quick. They instantly start burning all the buildings and fields in Stone Arabia and head out. As they're on their way, they come across George Clock's homestead. Now, George Clock was a known scam artist, and he repeatedly, over the years, tried to and did cheat the Mohawk people. Back in 1774, Joseph Brandt and a group of other men went to Clock's home, forced their way in, and held him at a tomahawk point and forced him to sign papers relinquishing a patent right on their entire village of Kanajahori. Apparently, he had tricked some people, probably in some kind of drunken stupor, into signing a paper that they didn't know what it was, you know, kind of giving away their entire village. So even the governor of New York stepped in to try and have Clock return the land to the Mohawks, but he refused the governor. But it seems once some Mohawk people came into his house and had his throat up to a blade, he was a much more inclined to sign the document. Anyway, they're right at his doorstep when they get to the Kanajahori Ford, and they run into Oneida and American forces waiting for them, led by... Van Rensselaer? Yes. Brandt and Sir John Johnson's men were trying to retreat across the river, but the general's men show up right as they're halfway through fording their men across, so half of them are able to escape. Meanwhile, the other half are being completely bogged down by over a thousand militia, 
hammering down on them, pinning them back. Now, what works to the loyalists' advantage at this point, Andrew, is the day they've been fighting all day. Uh, Brown's men had come earlier in the day. So it's already getting close to twilight. So now the Patriots have a huge advantage in numbers. We're looking at if Brown's leftover men have joined this thousand, there could be up to 1,300 men against roughly 600 men. So once again, two to one odds. The Patriots give them a pretty good shellacking, Andrew. Yeah, they kind of have them surrounded in a semicircle. And when the Mohawks start retreating back across the river, the Oneida and the Americans just totally lay into them in volleys. And the only thing that kind of stops it is John Johnson has one little cannon that he has left over and he fires it at the Americans. He doesn't hit anything, but it's enough to calm them down. And then darkness falls. And uh, General Van Rensselaer is trying to continue to fight even into the darkness, but it just becomes a huge mess eventually once it becomes pitch black. So he realizes, okay, we're just going to have to make camp here and wait for sunup, and then we'll continue the attack. The problem is what happens right before sunup. Brant and Johnson, they realize that they're outnumbered two to one, and they could very well be destroyed here, and they need to get the dodge out of heck. So they're already on their way before first light even happens. But Colonel Lewis Cook, he absolutely hates Brant. And when I say he hates Brant, it's not like he's heard about Brant and is really upset at the things he's done. He personally knows Brant, and the two do not get along at all. Remember, these two guys are both Mohawk leaders. General Rensselaer is standing around, and they see two trails, and they're not sure which one to take. And Lewis Cook is fording the river, and he's like, come on, we're wasting time. Just just go. we got to catch up with them. They're on the run. We can take them. This is our opportunity to get the monster Brant. And to get Johnson, we cannot waste this opportunity. And uh, the Americans are sitting around kind of, well, I don't know. We, well, and Lewis gets so upset that he starts shaking his sword and he points it at Rensselaer across the river and starts cursing him out and accusing him of being a Tory agent. Pretty strong words. Mm -hmm. That's how much he wanted to pursue. In the end, they finally do head out. They capture about 40 people that are stragglers on the way. But by the time they get to find Johnson and Brant, they already look out and see them on a boat on Onondaga Lake sailing back. When Sir John Johnson gets back to Canada, he claims that he destroyed 600,000 bushels of grain. Did he? That's what he claims. Governor George Clinton... He claimed that the destruction was over 150,000 bushels of corn and over 200 houses burned. He said that Schenectady should be now considered the western frontier of New York State because every single thing west of there has been burned and destroyed. And every single person that lived there has fled. That's, if you think about that, that's actually quite remarkable how effective Brant and Johnson have been over the years doing these raids. They've... I mean, it's not going to work out for them. But if you look at it on a map, these things are actually reclaiming the Mohawk homeland back to what they were before the settlers even arrived. Now, Andrew, this is basically going to wrap up the warfare in New York for 1780. So we're going into the last year of the Revolutionary War. Uh, let's talk about what's happening to this, these Oneida and these Tuscarora, where if you remember, when they heard Brant was coming, they, they fled to Stanwix. Fort Stanwix, and they basically made a makeshift village outside of it. Their farms and their orchards had all been destroyed by Brant in July, and Philip Schuyler, he walks through this fort of the Oneida and the Tuscarora, and he was so devastated to see their condition. Uh, many of the Oneida and Tuscarora were borderline starving, Almost none of them had any warm clothes, and this is in October, November, so the worst of the winter hasn't even showed up yet. So Schuyler immediately appeals to Congress to aid the Indians who had fought, quote, readyingly and loyally for the Americans. He said that the United States was bound by every principle of honor to come to the aid of the people who had been reduced and are now desperate 
because they fought for American liberty. So pretty compelling words, don't I mean, you think? They have a treaty with them. They're allies. When no aid came, some of the Indians ended up leaving Fort Schuyler and moving further north, hoping to uh, find food to hunt, and they were just going to live in small huts and try to, to live on their own out in the wilderness. Schuyler later chastised Congress for the meager supplies that they sent to the Oneida, and uh, they eventually sent some clothing, but it wasn't even enough to clothe one-eighth of the Oneida and Tuscarora that were living there. But don't worry, Andrew, because New York State is going to look out for their best interest. Well, that's good to hear. Because right at the end of the winter, in 1781, the New York State legislator ordered 185 blankets to be purchased for the Indians. They received them in mid-March. So they went the whole winter without anything. Yes. They got their blankets in mid-March, right at the end of winter and the start of spring. Great friends. Brant is back at Fort Niagara, and he kind of goes into this depression mood. Even though he's been highly successful in many of these campaigns and battles, he still kind of feels an emptiness. And he's just, I mean, he's doing the same thing over and over again, these raids into the same place over and over again. And he's just looking for a change of scenery. He's kind of having this midlife crisis. Another issue that allegedly arises is he kind of, for the first recorded time, gets inebriated at Fort Niagara and kind of is coming into conflict with some people. And so shortly thereafter, he hears about an opportunity to go into the western frontier near Fort Detroit. And when this opportunity presents himself, he thinks that it would be a good idea. And so in that early winter part of 1781, he boards a boat on Lake Erie and sails for Fort Detroit. Joining him on this expedition were 17 other of his uh, closest companions and by the time they arrive at Detroit they see things kind of pretty happening. Detroit is a major trading post at this point in time. There's a lot of British troops there because American forces have tried many times during this war to try and capture Detroit. But every single time they do, it seems to end in disaster. The problem is it was just too far away, Andrew. It just became a logistical nightmare to man. Unless it's a time of peace, as soon as war breaks out, this thing is, this fort is just stranded out there in the middle of nowhere. So it's always the first to fall to whoever wants it. And do you recall, I can't even remember which episode it was, but it's way back at the beginning of our American Revolution series, but Gayasuta, the half-king leader of the Seneca Mingo, said that they would not permit any army to march through the Ohio Territory to Detroit. Remember how he said that and mm -hmm. warned them? Well, he meant it. Recently, in November of 1780, right before Brant arrives, Chief Little Turtle and the Miami tribe had repelled and defeated an American force that was trying to take Fort Detroit. They only sent 100 men, so it was pretty easy for them. Brant kind of starts being this uh, cheerleader booster whose job is to start going around to the different prop nations of the Haudenosaunee and try and encourage them to continue to support the British as they march towards their inevitable victory over the rebels. So he actually holds a very large council in April of 1781. So Brant holds a council with representatives from a whole bunch of different nations. They got the Shawnee there, the Huron, the Ottawa, Potawatomi, Chippewa, Miami, no Winnebago's. Oh, I was looking for it on there. Gayasuta is also present with some Mingo officials. There, Brant and the different British head honchos encourage the tribes to unite together to repel the American invasions. And what they really mean is help us out to repel American invasions against us. Word was out that the Americans were getting ready to send another large army into the Ohio region, led by a guy named George Rogers Clark. Now, Clark's a pretty common name, Caleb, but did you know that George had a little brother? And does the last name Clark sound familiar at all in American history? Lewis and Clark? That's the one. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm thinking, uh, no, actually, it doesn't, Andrew. This is his older brother okay. leading this expedition to burn native towns and possibly strike at Detroit. Anywho, 
Brant and the council decide that they will gather all of their forces together and try and regroup at a village called Sandusky, which I believe is Indiana. And there they meet up with 160 more warriors led by Simon Gurdy. And he had an interesting nickname. Yeah, Andrew, he was known as the White Savage. There's now, even a book about this guy. Have you seen Oh, it? there's tons of books about yeah. him. Fi- yeah. Even fictional accounts. Yeah, the, the one I, I didn't realize he was a real guy until just now, but I, I saw this fictional novel. I think it was called Simon Gertie, The Wilderness Warrior. And it was like a romance novel or something. Oh, yeah. So it's, this is based off a real guy, apparently. Yeah. I'm sorry that we haven't had a chance to mention him yet, but he's been in the background the whole time. He had an amazing life. Short summary, during the French and Indian War, he was captured along with his whole family when he was just 15. His family was split up and he was sent to a village and he was spared after he bravely ran the gauntlet. Standing there outside at the end of the gauntlet was Kayasuta. And he was so impressed at this young man that he adopted him as his own son. And so he ended up growing up under Gayasuta in a Seneca village in Lake Erie for seven years. And the kid became fully Seneca. Uh, he had his hair pulled out and he just had the scalp lock, the single brand sticking up. He wore a breech cloth and leggings, a deerskin shirt, moccasins. He was a white Indian. At the end of Gayasuta and Pontiac's war, One of the conditions of the treaty was the British demanded that all prisoners be returned to the British. So reluctantly, Gayasuta had to send his adopted son back. But so many times we've seen that people that are adopted into Native American Northeastern tribes didn't really adjust to their European ways. When they came home, they totally rejected it and they wanted to go back to their families. And Gertie was one of these people. As soon as he could, he moved back to the frontier, and he was living in and around Fort Pitt during Lord Dunmore's War. That's the one that happened when Logan the Orator had his whole family killed, and he and Gertie were friends, and it was Gertie that came to Logan after the Battle of Point Pleasant to end Lord Dunmore's War, and they wanted Logan to come to the peace conference. So Gertie is the one that came to Logan's elm And he brought the message back, written down from Logan, and presented Logan's lament. So this guy has been around the whole time, but we haven't had a chance to discuss him, Caleb. When the American Revolution started, at first he throws his lot in with the Americans, and he actually fights very bravely in many uh, colonial battles. But soon thereafter, he flips sides after he sees that the British are actually the better people for his adopted Mingo people, and they stand a better chance of surviving. And so he flips and joins the other side, and his whole family, uh, his British family, are split as well. Some of his brothers stay loyal with the Americans, but another two side with the British. And his other brother was named George, and he was a leader of a Tory party. And soon, this whole family of Gertie people are joining with Brant. Anyway... They're waiting around, and they're waiting for Clark's forces to arrive. The problem is, Clark was taking too long to get anywhere due to, what's the reason that people are always delayed? Supply problems. He had supply problems. During this time, Brant's forces kind of came and went as they pleased, because they're just sitting around waiting, looking at their wristwatches. You said he was coming. This takes place over months. Finally, in August 1781, Clark starts marching in the Ohio area. He's got a large force, and he's got two groups. The smaller one is led by Colonel Archibald Lockery, who, through a series of horrible logistical problems, was supposed to rejoin up with Clark, but he had started lagging behind. But Brant had learned about Clark's army coming, and he was ready for him. And after seeing the number of soldiers in the group, Brant and George Gertie decided that they could not possibly take on that many soldiers, so they hid until the army had completely passed them by. As luck would have it, a few days later they captured a group of about six men. Uh, They were from Lockley's group, and they had a message on them asking Clark to send back supplies because the second group was out of ammunition. Out of gunpowder, you say? Hmm, Andrew, 
uh, how could they make this knowledge work for them? Well, Brant and Gertie instantly sent out the word that there was a group ripe for the picking. And soon they had 150 reinforcements. On August 29th, Lockery's flotilla landed near present-day Aurora, Indiana. The Patriots unloaded their boats and horses, and they, they left them to graze in the fields. And the men saw a buffalo just standing there. And as we all know, buffalo are notorious for just standing there and letting you shoot them, especially in Oregon Trail. Hey, you can shoot like 20 buffalo in like five minutes in Oregon Trail. Um, Gertie had his Indian scouts with him, and they were on both sides of the riverbank. And news of the landing was immediately communicated, and they had a force of 648 warriors now. Wow. And uh, all of a sudden you see a bunch of people making noise shooting buffaloes. Uh, it gives away your position pretty easily. So some of Gertie's men took up position quietly on the bluffs overlooking the sandbar where the Pennsylvania Rangers were located. Others approached sneaking from the opposite riverbank through like the cattails and stuff. And they took the militia completely by surprise and they just opened up a huge volley. The soldiers went to grab their arms and fought for their lives, uh, but they barely had any ammunition, as uh, Brant's men knew. They tried to escape to their boats, but the Indians pursued them and started ripping them down. Almost everyone was captured and killed. Not almost everyone, Caleb. Everyone. Everyone was killed or captured. Colonel Lockery was said to have been tomahawked by a Shawnee Indian after the battle while sitting on a log. All told, the number of deaths was 37, but everyone else was captured. Not one person escaped to tell what happened. Wow. In fact, Clark didn't even know what happened to Lockery for months. That's a huge victory for Brant again. And you would think that Brant and Gertie would really be getting along now with their new partnership. But supposedly very shortly after this, the two of them get into a drunken brawl with Brant saying and lamenting that he wishes that he had enough men to destroy the first American column. And Gertie told him that he was a bragger and there's no way he could have destroyed that first column. And Joseph responded by striking Simon Gertie in the face with his sword. And this left him permanently scarred for life. So this was most likely a full swipe with his sword down his face. And Gertie already had this image about him. He had a huge nose ring, and he dressed in the Seneca Mingo fashion, and with a scar across his face and his head plucked with a single lock of hair growing out as a huge man, you can see why his legend just continued to grow over the years and why so many people wrote about him. Before there were Westerns, there were these uh, novels, and many of them feature him in it. Anyway, back to Brandt. By October, he's in Detroit. He's become very ill because somehow he may have accidentally cut himself on his leg, and it's become infected. The doctors actually get to the point where they're actually really worried that he could lose it. He's too ill to travel. He's forced to spend the whole winter there. So in December, his wife decided to leave Niagara and come join him to nurse him back to health. So while Brant's recuperating, let's get back to New York and see what's going on. The Mohawk Valley is continuing to see attacks, even though Brant's not there. And Governor George Clinton is just trying to get a new coach, I guess, to see if anybody can take care of these raiding issues. So he appoints a guy named Colonel Willett to be in charge of the defense of the Mohawk Valley. Uh, there's raids that go off and on throughout the spring and summer. A Mohawk raiding party is attacking near Route, New York, but Willett's men are able to defeat and repel them. And then, in October 1781, another huge British raiding party led by John Ross and Walter Butler head down the Mohawk Valley. Butler we've been talking about for the last nine episodes as well. He's one of the leaders of Butler's Rangers. Next to Brant and Johnson, Butler is like the most hated guy in New York right now. As they're coming down, they finally get to the village of Johnstown, which is where William Johnson's family was from. So Willett gathers a force of militiamen, and they start pursuing Butler, and they finally catch up with him around noon. There's little skirmishes that break out. Finally, Willett gets 40 of his men and Oneida to pursue Butler, and after following them for two nights, the Oneida discover Butler's trail. They find out that they're heading towards Lake Oneida. Now, while they're pursuing, 
a huge snowstorm hits, which I guess is not highly uncommon in New York in October, but it's not like it happens all the time. So in the morning, they come upon Butler's camp near West Canada Creek. You ever been there, Caleb? No. Where Where is it at? Adirondacks, just <clears> south <throat> of the Adirondacks. Yeah, but where south of the Adirondacks? That's what I'm, I'm trying to picture it. I can't picture it in my head. Do you know what town it's next to? There's no towns around there. Oh. Anyway, what? just to be clear, West Canada Creek was nowhere near Canada. They end up catching the men totally by surprise. They had just crossed the creek, and so they had hung up their clothes to dry on the trees over the fire. So they literally caught Butler with his pants down. Butler heads back over the creek. He's on horseback, and he immediately dismounts, and he tries sulking through the trees. But then he cries out and says this to his pursuers. Shoot and be damned. As soon as he had said that, he took a bullet to the head. In one telling, it was Colonel Lewis Cook that shot him. In another account, it was our friend Saucy Nick. It seems most likely what happened is that Cook picked up his gun and shot him in the head. And Saucy Nick went over, scalped him, and took off his clothes. Because years later, Saucy Nick would walk around wearing Butler's clothes. And so with that, Walter Butler, the villain of the Cherry Valley Massacre and one of the most hated men in all of New York, was dead. As soon as the Patriots returned to their homes, messages began arriving from Virginia that Washington and the French Navy had surrounded Lord Cornwallis' army in Yorktown. And we're not going to get into details, but pretty much Cornwallis was stuck on a peninsula Washington and the French army cut him off on the peninsula and the French Navy swooped in from behind to prevent his escape. Yeah, if you ever want a real good uh, historical telling of that, just watch Mel Gibson's The Patriot. No! (laughs) (laughs) During the siege of Yorktown, the British were forced to surrender and they lost 7,500 men given up on October 19th, 1781. Back in England, the British Prime Minister Lord North is reported to have exclaimed... Oh, God, it's all over. So when he hears of the defeat, they realize that we're going to have to give the Americans their independence. There would be no more major battles involving the British for the rest of the war. So that means the war's over, right, Andrew? Well, fighting stops on the East Coast, and it mainly ends after Yorktown. But bloody engagements continue over the next couple years. Brant didn't know anything about the war ending. And so during this next year and a half, there's negotiations going on between England and France and the U.S. and Spain, and they're all taking turns talking. And so when you got an ocean between you, a lot of back and forth happens. So with this diplomatic phone tag, Britain kind of forgot to tell the native nations what was going on. So while Brant is still fighting it out, he learns that, hey, we've come to terms with the Americans, and how would you feel? I'd be... Pretty, especially after we spent all these episodes and seeing how Brant is just wearing himself thin constantly all year preparing to fight these battles. And then just to find out that the allies that you were so devoted to have made peace without even telling you, you everybody, they must have felt betrayed, Andrew. Totally. That's literally the words he used. He felt betrayed. Not only that, the British told him, we're going to have to pull out. And um, he said, well, what did the treaty say? Does it say anything about us? No, actually, it makes no mention of you guys. We just gave all the land all the way to the Mississippi Valley away. You did what? So we think it would be best if you make peace with the Americans on your own. Bye-bye. Yeah, it really could have ended completely different if the British were willing to bring the Iroquois into the peace talks Because then there could have been some better treaties. I mean, we say that. I don't know if they would have honored them anyway. It's kind of an ongoing sad story of treaties being made and broken. But they felt betrayed. And a couple years later, when they're making peace with the newly formed American government, uh, some people even acknowledged that they appreciate how America is, I say America, that the United States is talking to them because it's more than their allies the British ever did. So they actually gave some respect to the United States over the British because at least they were talking to them. So coming up in a little bit, we'll be talking fully about the treaties that the Six Nations have to come to terms with. And not only do they have to come to terms with America, they have to come to terms with each other. Because this has just been a 
six or seven year civil war amongst themselves. Is the Confederacy going to survive this? Are the six nations going to all fragment and break apart? Are they going to survive at all as individual nations? Thank you, everybody. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Uh, it's a new month, Caleb, so do you know what that means? Uh, no, actually, I don't. What does it mean? Oh, it means we've got more iTunes reviews oh, to read out. Cool. Any good ones? All five-star reviews. Awesome. As they all are, 99.9% of the time. We've got one from... Boy, this person just randomly wrote letters on their keyboard. I believe that's how it's pronounced. He says, love the podcast. What about Corn Planter? Can't wait for more. That's a good point. I actually just read an entire book about Corn Planter this past week. So he will be in the narrative. He'll probably be showing up in the next episode. Uh, we have also got one from Silent Ranger in Canada. Esterno from the United States. Here's one from Canada, and I suck at French names. So I'm going to totally butcher this. <laughs> Andrew, you should just pretend that you are fluent and do your best. Okay. La Red Rache from Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded perfect to me. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the clan. We have HG7575, also from Canada, and they write this, they got like three paragraphs worth of awesome things, but they find it annoying that we can't get upriver and downriver right when we're talking about Montreal and Fort Frontenac. <laughs> Sorry. Well, that's not as bad as the guy that was said we're great, but we can't pronounce Oregon. Oregon. What? Oregon? It's Oregon, the Oregon Trail, not the Oregon Trail. Whatever. Uh, we've also got O Blank O from the U.S. and M.K. Cheshire from the United States. Thank you for the reviews, everybody. We really appreciate it. Be sure to like us on Facebook. We're getting really close to 1,000 likes on there, so that's pretty cool. Feel free to message us. You can do it on Facebook or at our email, longhousepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can check out our website, longhousepodcast.com and we're also on twitter at iroquois history i hope you've all enjoyed the series we've done on the american revolution there's still a lot more to come so we will see you next time